my friends, and welcome to episode 18 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, the Jack Nicholson superfan, with everything you need to know in the career of the man himself, Jack Nicholson. So now that we are coming to the end of 1973 and entering into 74, Jack is now a three-time Academy Award nominee for Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces, and the last detail. All what you could refer to as cult classics and really bona fide cult classics. Now in 1974, we take another step up from there because this would be the year that Jack would star in one of his all-time memorable roles. The film we are talking about today is a true classic. I think anyone who appreciates film especially from this time period when we're right in the middle of the new Hollywood era, regardless of what their personal tastes are, is aware of 1974's Chinatown. Directed by Roman Polanski, starring Jack as Private Eye Jake or J.J. Giddis, Faye Dunaway as Evelyn Mulray, John Huston as Noah Cross, John Huston, of course, a famed director of old Hollywood classics, and just to name a few, The Maltese Falcon, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, and also The Misfits, which, mind you, was both Clark Gable's and Marilyn Monroe's last film before they each died. And it's worth mentioning that John Huston is also the father of Angelica Huston, who Jack had just recently began a relationship with in early 1973. And for those of you who know, there is a moment in the film that kind of becomes relevant as just an interesting piece of trivia, which we will get to. So we also have Perry Lopez as Lieutenant Lou Escobar, John Hillerman as Russ Yelburton, Diane Ladd as Ida Sessions, We know Diane Ladd, of course. She starred in a not-so-great flick that I've reviewed on here before. That, of course, was Rebel Rousers. She was also previously married to another friend of the podcast, Bruce Dern, and Daryl Zwirling as Hollis Mulray, the chief engineer of Los Angeles Water and Power and whose murder is the main event of our story. The script was written by Robert Town. That name must sound familiar because just one year earlier, he adapted the script for the last detail. So here's how it happened. In 1971, Robert Town was offered $175,000 from producer Robert Evans to adapt the script for The Great Gatsby. But he turned it down because what it came down to was he didn't think he would be able to do justice to the novel by F. Scott Fitzgerald. However, he instead asked Evans for $25,000 to write an original script. And Evans agreed, and the creation of Chinatown was set in motion. It was the right decision because, without question, Chinatown may be Robert Town's absolute crowning achievement as a screenwriter. Today I have a guest joining me, a writer and filmmaker here in Connecticut, my friend Melissa Torriero. To get a taste of her work, check out the website latebloomerproductions.net. 
So now, here's our review of Chinatown. So my first question to you, Melissa, is what were your initial thoughts on the composition of the script? Well, first, thanks, Sarah, for having me on the show. Um, this is this is a lot of fun. Um, I got to tell you, it's, it is a, a spectacularly made film. Um, I don't know what a perfect script is necessarily, but this one's, you know, pretty perfect. Like... Every word is very carefully chosen, and every person who's involved in the film, I think, is at the top of their game, you know, from the costume to the cinematography, the production, the direction, the acting is spectacular. Um, but my first impression of the whole, the whole thing was, well, yeah, I mean, that was my impression, that this is what happens when you take people who are at the top of their game and put them together and they create a project. Um, it's just a stunning work. I mean, there are, there are a couple of quote unquote mistakes, but for the most part, it's, this is really, this is, this is a, a display of artistry. It, it's, it's technically considered a neo-noir because it's made outside of the time frame of that period, 1933 to 45, which is considered, uh, when they were the height of making film noir and it and it um so it's a film noir but it's it, it's actually made in 1974 that in the actual time of film noir <laughs> so um but it hits all of those notes you know we have a woman who comes to a pi and um she's not who she claims to be and he gets on the job and um he eventually meets a, a femme fatale who is the love interest there's always you know, a woman is always at the center of the problem. And, uh, at, you know, at one point, um, Evelyn, she asks him, and he looks at her and she says, was a woman involved? Um, that really is like the cliche of all film noir, that there, that whatever trouble is happening, it's the cause is a woman. A woman is at the heart of everything wrong that's happening. Um and so, you know, and, and so that's one of the big notes that it hits in terms of being a film noir. But, you know, we have a big city. We've got TV people. The lighting, is, there's a lot of use of shadow and and some shots that are spectacular. We've got, oh, that's the word for the day, I guess, spectacular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, we have some shots that are in the mirror, in the camera lens. I mean, really all very... Um, indicative of a, of a film noir and, and a very well done one. Um, but I also kind of see it as a period piece. And again, a very well done period piece. Everybody on this production was at the top of their game. This, um, the costumes, mm-hmm. if you look at them carefully, everything, the fabric, the details, the, the, um, the stitching, um, all of the, the props, the setting, everything is, is spot on except for one glaring problem, which is that the backdrop of the story is the uh, L.A. Water Wars, 
which really happened before 1933. Um, but they're setting, or I guess the film is actually set in 1937, yeah. So the water wars didn't happen exactly at that time, but that they sort of put that together. Um, but other than that, it's historically, when you look at... Um, you know how how it was made. Really, they they sell it completely. It's it's perfection. I mean, it's a very multi-dimensional plot, and the characters are multi-dimensional. They're written expertly, um, and and like you said before, um, you don't maybe realize until you get further into the movie that every single word is there for a reason. The the phrases that they use when they say things like, um, you know, you think you know what's going on here. We hear that a couple of times. And um, we realize in the end, you know, what that, what that really means. But um, in terms of the characters and the things that they say, the lingo is spot on. They mm-hmm. use words like, um, Mac, hey, Mac, mm-hmm. what, do you, exactly. you know, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, they really got it right. So I want to start getting into the synopsis. And I want to bring up something that you mentioned to me a second ago which I didn't realize when I watched the movie, but when I think back on it, I do. Um, starts out that we have, we have Jack Nicholson as Jake or J.J. Giddis. He's a private investigator in Los Angeles in 1937, and his work primarily consists of tailing people that are having extramarital affairs. Um, yeah. The opening scene, he's in his office. He's showing pictures to a character named Curly, um, whose wife had been cheating on him. And uh, you had just mentioned to me before we started recording something that I didn't really realize at the time, but it gets back to what you just said about the costumes, is that in that opening scene, Jake is wearing like a cream colored suit. Uh, It's very white. It's very clean. There's something very um, uh, bright and almost, I want to say, optimistic about the look. Yeah, and his attitude, too. He's very cool. He's very calm. He's literally cool. He's wearing, like, linen, I think. And, and you see this poor guy, Curly, is a, is a mess. And he's, he's a working guy, and he's sweaty, and he's dirty, and he's upset. And the contrast between them is, like, you, you get the impression that J.J. Is, is above it all. He's like, yeah, 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 she's terrible. What can I tell you when you're right? Right. And you're right. <laughs> you know? So, and this is how he makes his money on stuff that, you know, it's it's not really tragic. It's just what what people do, and um, you know he found a niche that he's comfortable with, and he looks very comfortable in the beginning of the movie. After that is when we have a woman identifying herself as Evelyn Mulray, and this woman is played by Diane Ladd. Um, yeah, she and it's a great line where. You know, she's sitting in the office and she's smoking her cigarette and she says, uh-huh. I, ex- I expect my, my husband is seeing another woman. And Jake <laughs> sort of uh, sort of sarcastically goes, no, really? <laughs> and sits down. Yeah. This is what he does. He, the, 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 this, it's nothing new. But she says, and that's always the case. Yeah, in a in a, in a PI, anything that has to do with a PI, even if it's not film noir, it's like 
your, you know, regular, you know, um, like a Dick Tracy kind of thing. There's always the first person who comes to him with a problem is not who they say they are. We find out who uh, her, who Evelyn Mulray's husband is, and he's right. Hollis Mulray, and he's the chief mm-hmm. engineer for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power um, during this time, and during the water wars. Isn't he perfectly cast as an engineer? Yes, exactly. I mean, come on. He's lanky. He's kind of dry. He's very serious. It, mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's got the suit and a bow tie, the mustache. Yeah. He's like, he's, he definitely has the look. He goes out on the boat with one of his guys to take pictures. And they're they're floating along. And that's a really cute scene because they're basically, like, teasing each other. You know, oh, this you're going to like this picture. And mm-hmm. he's, you know, um, as if they're together. It's cute. And um, they see Hollis and the girl and they take the pictures. That's the first time he sees the girl. That's the first time that he sees them and he's taking pictures of Hollis Mulray and this unnamed blonde girl together. But the pictures shortly thereafter end up being printed in the newspaper. It ends up being a front page news in the newspaper. Yeah. And there's even this scene in the barbershop. Fools' names and fools' faces. What's that, pal? Nothing. You've got a hell of a way to make a living. Oh? And what do you do to make ends meet? Mortgage department, First National Bank. Tell me, did you foreclose on many families this week? We don't publish a record in the paper, I can tell you that. Neither do I. No. You have your press agent do it. Who is this bimbo, Barney? Is he a regular customer or what? Listen, pal, I make an honest living. People only come to me when they're in a desperate situation. I help them out. I don't kick families out of their houses like you bums down at the bank, Jake. Can I tell you about the guy who... Maybe like to step down out of the barber chair. Maybe we go outside and discuss it. What do you think? Jake, let me tell you about the guy I got tired of. I don't know how that thing got in the newspaper. It was so quick I didn't even know it myself. Make an honest living. Of course you do. Huh? Well, anyway, this story, this guy who got tired of screwing his wife, and he said to his friend, An honest do I do? living, so understand? the guy says, why don't you do what the Chinese do? He says, what do the Chinese do? His reputation is very important to him. And, and that's what we get out of that scene, that he gets really heated if someone's trying to say that he's being crooked or he's being dirty. Like, remember, he starts out wearing that white suit, that clean, creamy white suit, he, um, and he's cool as a cucumber, like, he's, quote-unquote, above it all, and here, this does make him look bad, and so, um, and his reputation is everything to him, so, yeah, he gets really heated, that's very important to him. And I remember, I, I, if I think back to years ago, uh, I think it was the first time that I saw this movie, I mean, I remember being sort of surprised at his angry reaction to see him suddenly jump out of the chair like that yeah ready to fight this guy because i think it's because he was so cool up until that point he's very very cool calm collected he's like he has everything together but yeah it's sort of like the moment that his character was called into question yeah it was the thing that that set him off like that's the thing that triggers him and we you know we find out later that he's an ex-cop 
mm-hmm. and that it was important to him that he was not a dirty cop. But then when he gets back to his office after that, that's when we meet the real Evelyn Mulray, the real Mrs. Mulray. Jay, Duffy, listen to me, man. I want to tell you a story. So there's this guy, Walsh, you understand? He's tired of screwing his wife. So wait a second, Duffy, you're always in such a hurry. So his friend says to him, hey, why don't you do it like the Chinese do? So he says, well, how do the Chinese do it? The guy says, well, the Chinese, first they screw a little bit, then they stop. They go and uh, read a little Confucius, come back, screw a little bit more, then they stop again, go back, and they screw a little bit more. Walsh, just listen to me for a second. I really love this. Now, then they go back and they screw a little bit more, and then they go out and they contemplate the moon or something like that. makes it more exciting. So now... The guy goes home and he starts screwing his own wife. See? So he screws her for a little bit and then he stops and he goes out of the room and he reads Life magazine. Then he goes back in, he starts screwing again. He says, excuse me for a minute, honey. And he goes out and he smokes a cigarette. Now his wife is getting sore as hell. He comes back in the room, he starts screwing again. He gets up to start to leave again to go look at the moon. She looks at him and says, hey, what's the matter with you? You're screwing just like a Chinaman. <laughs> Mr. Gittes? Yes. Do you know me? Well, uh... I think I would have remembered. Have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. That's what I thought. You see, I'm Mrs. Evelyn Mulray. You know Mr. Mulray's wife? Not, uh, that Mulray. Yes, Mr. Giddies, that Mulray. Yeah, that is the best meet-cute I've ever seen, where he's telling that joke and then turns around. Not only is he, like, stunned into silence because there's a woman present, and he's also stunned at how gorgeous she is. And you can see, like, he doesn't know which way to go. Like, his face is frozen. He doesn't really know. (laughs) And that's Jack. That's Jack being spectacular. Like, that that cannot be easy to do, to pull off that that whole confused face that is saying, like, oh, my God, look at you, and oh, my God, I just did that, and, and what? And I was just laughing as hard as I can, and now I'm, like, completely serious. Well, I love um, Evelyn Mulray, who's played by Faye Dunaway. Um, I love her reaction, too, which was a lack of a reaction to the joke, yeah. too. And she wasn't shocked yeah. or offended. I just, it's a great scene when his back is to her and he's yeah. telling this dirty joke to his two associates. And she's just standing in the doorway right behind him, just giving yeah. him, like, just this staring daggers at him the whole time. Yeah. And And she also starts out this film very cool and collected. And that's a perfect example. Like, we first meet her, and she is absolutely stoic, and she's absolutely serious, and she means all business. She knew exactly what she came there to say to him, and, uh, and she walks out. And then we find out later that, you know, that's a facade. This is the point where Jake realizes that somebody has set him up. So his assumption is that, is that Hollis Mulray must be um, the target, the target of, of blackmail. He's already done the job that the fake Mrs. Um, 
as a fake Evelyn gave him, he took the pictures, he delivered them to, to her and said, here's your proof, right? I mean, we don't see that, but we can assume it. But now he's dragged into this mess by being put into the newspaper and his reputation's at stake. And so he, it, he for his own purposes, has to get into this, even though there's nobody paying him to do it. Well, that's when he meets Lieutenant Lou Escobar, who he knows, right. who he used to be on the police force with. And right. so they have... Uh, they have a long-standing um, relationship with with each other. They've known each other for a very long time, Jake. And oh my God, I love this Esquire. part. So oh, I apologize. No, it's okay. Um, I get excited and I interrupt. No, I love this part because the undertone of their conversation, again, the delivery from these actors, they're talking like the the stupidest. They're making the stupidest small talk. So, how's it, you know, how, how you been? Oh, great. And you look like you're doing okay. Yeah, you're doing all right. But underneath it, they're, they don't like each other. There's tension. Right. And, it, and it's beautifully presented. Jake knows that, well, Jake knows what kind of cop Escobar is, that he... Right. That he, he basically got this promotion uh, just from being crooked. And... At that point is when Jake says to Escobar, uh, well, I'm looking for Hollis Mulray. And uh, and Escobar has this sort of scoffs at him. And yeah. He's like, oh, yeah. You look like you've done well by yourself. I get by. Well, sometimes it takes a while for a man to find himself. Maybe you have. Yeah, going to other people's dirty linen. Yeah. Tell me, you still putting Chinaman in jail for spitting in the laundry? You're a little behind the times, Jake. They use steam irons now. And I'm out of Chinatown. Since when? Since I made lieutenant. Congratulations. Hmm. What are you doing around here? I'm looking for somebody. Who? Hollis Mulray. You seen him? Yeah. I'd like to talk to him. If you'd like to talk to him. You're welcome to try. There he is. Yeah. And that's at the point where he sort of points over to where another officer is... And it's it's really a very jarring scene because at this point in yeah. the movie we haven't seen anything we haven't seen anything violent or anything uh, visual visually disturbing or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah. right at this moment, we see uh, Hollis's body being pulled up by a rope. Uh, there's a rope around his torso and. He's being dragged up from the reservoir by by this other officer. And yeah. it's quite a jarring thing to realize because you can just, it, it, I mean, it's, it's evident that he drowned because when you see his body being pulled up, his eyes are wide open. I re- that was one of yeah. the first things I've noticed. That was one of the first things I noticed about his body being pulled up. I did his too. Eyes. I did too. His yeah. eyes. Yeah, his eyes just like bulging. And 
you know, his limp body being dragged up with sort of this lasso around the torso. It's, it's, yeah. um, and the shot too, um, the shot, we don't even, uh, we can't get a, a really a clear look at him because in the shot, we see him upside down. Yes. Yes. Oh, and, and I didn't notice the first time I watched the film, but the second time I watched it, um, that he it has lost a shoe. And, and that is not meaningful at all, again, until later. And even then, I'm not sure if it's meaningful. It's just one of those little cinematic tricks that, um, that Roman Polanski decided to use. And if I could say one thing about Roman Polanski, <laughs> yes. you know, he's, really, he's brilliant. He, he, he is. He's also a child molester. He is. Which makes this, which makes this kind of ironic. But, um, you know, it's, we have, human beings are multifaceted and talent is not reserved for the deserving. You know, there are plenty of terrible people who are very talented and he's one of them. Absolutely. And the, the way he pulls off this film, really, I mean, you, you have to give it to him. It's, that's, that's just talent. Absolutely. I, I, I could not agree more with everything that you just said. After Hollis's body is pulled up from the reservoir, Evelyn is called in to identify his body. Right, right. And he doesn't know exactly what's happening, but he knows that, you know, he, he's going to cover for her against Escobar. We've already established that he and Escobar have tension. So that makes total sense at the time. We don't really know why. He doesn't know why he's covering for her because he doesn't know what her lie is all about. But uh, he goes with it. Mrs. Mulray, this uh, alleged affair your husband was having, publicity, didn't make him morose or unhappy. It didn't make him happy. There is no possibility that he would have taken his own life. No. Mrs. Mulray, do you happen to know the name of the young lady in question? No. Or where she might be? Certainly not. You and your husband never discussed her. He... We, we did. He, he, he wouldn't tell me her name. We quarreled over her, of course. It came as a complete surprise to me. A complete surprise? I thought you hired a private investigator. A, a, a private investigator? Mr. Giddies. Oh. Yes, but I, I did that because I thought I would put an end to a ridiculous rumor that had no basis. Uh-huh. When did Mr. Giddies inform you that these rumors had some foundation in fact? Uh, just before the story broke in the papers, Lou. Evelyn says to him as she's getting into her car, um, so I'll, I'll send you a check. And he's mm. confused. He's like, what, a check? And is like, and she says to make it official that I've hired you. And right. so she sort of has that mindset of, okay, we're gonna make sure we that this looks right, that you know, yeah. all the all the bases are covered, we've got the paper right. trail and you know, every, everything's gonna be official. So there's no right. you know, no no holes to the story. Yeah. Yeah. And she's trying really hard to maintain her lie. Hold it, uh, kitty cat. Hold it.
Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. Next time you lose the whole thing. Cut it off and feed it to my goldfish. And the moment where his where his nose gets sliced, this is something that I think is unique to this particular movie is that usually like when we look at old classic um, black and white movies um, if the hero is injured at some point yeah. or or in a fight or hurt somehow um, he's briefly disheveled for one scene yeah. but by the next scene he's he's looking pristine again Right. Um, whereas this is very different because in the following scene after that, after his nose is sliced, he's got this enormous bandage stretching yeah. across his face, covering his entire nose. At, yeah. when, we first, when we first see the bandage, it's covering his entire nose. And the tape, the gauze on uh, the bandage is um, actually crisscrossed on both sides so it looks even yeah. even like even more obnoxious basically yeah 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 so he's gotten he, he's you know he's picked up an injury and we can't forget about that and it's it's very um it's very visual too it's just like what what we were talking about like with the the cream colored suit at the beginning it's so much it's like a visual a visual deterioration of the character yeah. Yes, and the way his hair is, and at some points, yeah. you know, you see him, like, just pushing his hair back, where, you know, at other times it's very perfectly combed. You know, he's he's not that cool cucumber he was in the very beginning anymore. Like, he's, he's being pulled into this mess, and it's screwing him up. So the next time that we see him after that scene, when he's sitting in his office, and he's got this giant bandage stretching from one side of his face to the other... He's in his office with his two partners and he gets a phone call uh, and his secretary tells him that it's from Ida Sessions. And, mm -hmm. uh, and the secretary says, uh, you, you have a phone call from Ida Sessions and Jake says, well, you know, I don't, I don't know her and, you know, have her leave a message. Uh, but then, you know, the secretary rings him again and says, it's Ida Sessions. She says that she insists that she knows you. So he takes the call and he realizes that yeah. Ida, Ida Sessions um, is the woman who was pretending to be Evelyn Mulray at the very beginning of the film. And so yeah. and that it's it's a great moment, too, once he realizes uh, who she is, because he's kind of like he's taking her call, but he's kind of only half listening at first. And right. when she says... I was the woman who was pretending to be Mrs. Mulray. He jumps up out of his seat almost, and he, just, he yells over, he covers the phone, yells at his two associates, shut the fuck up. Yes. And she's like, excuse me? He tries to, he tries to find out from her uh, who hired her to, to come and pretend to be Mrs. Mulray, and she doesn't want to give up that information. Um, yeah. Because the whole reason that she's calling is she's saying that, you know, look, I, I never thought it would get this far. I didn't think anybody was going to be murdered or anything like that. Yeah. Um, 
Shusie yeah, says, she just she wants him to know she wasn't in on that part of it. She feels guilty. And she says to him, you know, I, I, I can't tell you uh, who my employer was, but you might want to check the obituaries. Noah Cross worked for the water department. Yes. No. Well, did he or didn't he? He owned it. He owned the water department? Yes. You mean he owned the entire water supply for the city? Yes. How'd they get it away from him? Mr. Mulray felt the public should own the water. Mr. Mulray? I thought you said Cross owned it. Along with Mr. Mulray. They were partners? Yes. Yes, they were partners. Yeah, he was in um, Yelburton's office, right? Because now Yelburton has taken over for Hollis, and um, he wants to talk to him, but he winds up sitting with the secretary who's trying to get rid of him. So he's being annoying so that she'll let him talk to the guy to get rid of him. And that's when he starts wandering around looking at the pictures and the plaques. And that's when he, he discovers Noah Cross, and he starts asking the secretary, wait, he owned it? He owned the water company? And she's like, well, um, you know, he worked for the company. And she's like, well, yes, but no. But, you know, he owned it. And then he's like, oh, and he was friends with how Hollis worked. And he's like, they owned it together. So um, she basically helps him piece together who's who. You've got a nasty reputation, Mr. Gibbs. I like that. Thanks. You were a bank president, that would be one thing, but in your business, it's uh, admirable and it's good advertising. Doesn't hurt. It's um, why you attract a client like my daughter. Probably. But I'm surprised you're still working for her, unless uh, she's suddenly come up with another husband. No. She happens to think the last one was murdered. Um, how'd she get that idea? I think I gave it to her. Hope you don't mind. I believe they should be served with the head. Fine. As long as you don't serve the chicken that way. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, um, what are the police say? They're calling it an accident. Who's the investigating officer? Lou Escobar. He's a lieutenant. You know him? Oh, yeah. Where from? We used to work together in Chinatown. Would you call him a capable man? Very. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Too bad? Hmm. Disturbs me. It makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gibbs. You don't have to think about that to remember. John Houston, who, as a matter of trivia here, actually directed the Maltese Falcon, which is considered one of the first of the neo-noir, which is what this film really is. It's a neo-noir, not an actual film noir from the original time frame 
Um, John Huston's performance is so creepy and so good. Like, he just, yeah, I'm floored by it. I think he, he was absolutely brilliant as the character of Noah Cross. He turns out to be so evil, this character. Yeah. And that that he's it it's all about ego and greed and we find out that everything that's been going on is has been fueled by Noah Cross's greed and his his yeah. desire for more power well so that's what that this is where i think um you know i'm i'm returning to that theme of the um the fish head this is where I think it's important. Again, everything is done for a reason. When they're at the table and Noah says to JJ, um, I hope you don't mind, I, I believe a fish should, should be served with the head on, which is kind of an, an awkward thing for people who, you know, Americans don't do that normally. And so, but you wonder, like, why the heck would he have to say something like that? But when you think of the expression, the fish rots from the head, then, then it sort of makes sense, and yeah. and but it makes sense later when you find out why we're talking about the fish rotting from the head, meaning yeah. from the top. And also, as just a interesting piece of trivia too about that particular scene, and we were talking about this before we were recording, um, that John Houston, of course, is the father of Angelica Houston, um, who just. The year before, in 1973, she and Jack uh, started a relationship. Um, and there's, during this scene, Noah Cross asks Jake, um, you know, you were, you were hired by my daughter. And um, Jake explains that, yes, he was. And then immediately Noah's next question is, are you sleeping with her? Mm. And, and it, what's, what's, just funny about that in real life is that um jack nicholson was in a relationship with john houston's real life daughter oh that's right i didn't even make that connection yeah. that's funny yeah that is really is funny a, and it's it, it's just it, it's it's funny too because it's one of those lines too it's sort of like the mandela effect with people because it's one of those lines that people remember wrong uh typically mm. people remember the line as being are you sleeping with my daughter but that's not what he asks he actually asks it much more sort of in passing he's okay. asking a completely different question about evelyn noah cross it's obviously is a very powerful man so it sort yeah. of seems i think it sort of seems like he can ask whatever he wants because yeah. he's a man who can get answers and he can ask any question of anybody that he, that he wants to ask. Yeah. But you know, um, JJ pushes back on that and he's too much of a gentleman to say, and also he's up, he, he knows what's up with this guy now and he's not going to let him get the upper hand. Um, but he does because later on in the conversation, um, I believe Noah Cross asked JJ, uh, you know, just find the girl, and he says, well, I don't know, he asked some sort of a question about, like, why, why is that important or, you know, whatever, and um, again, Noah Cross says, just find the girl. Like, he's used to telling people what to do and not having, not being questioned. Yeah, yeah and at this point, 
JJ really can't get the upper hand because, you know, he, he just has to do that. He's going to do it anyway, even though Noah just told him to. We hear him telling Jake to find the girl, find this this girlfriend of Hollis's is all we know this this girl as, this blonde girl that we saw right. him in Hollis in the boat with. And when Jake asks him, why should I find the girl? And Noah's answer to that is, well, she would be able to help you in your investigation. So just find mm-hmm. the girl. And that's, it's so much more sinister yeah. when we, when we, find out more about these characters later on yeah because it's so it it's the truth is so much more dark than even what it seems like we already know that this is a story of murder and scamming people but when you find out what's really going on like how these people are really uh connected to each other it becomes even even more even more dark after that That dam's a con job. What dam? The one your husband opposed. They're conning L.A. into building it, but the water's not going to go to L.A. It's coming right here. To the valley? Everything you can see, everything around us. I was at the Hall of Records today. In the last three months, Robert Knox has bought 7,000 acres, Emmett Dill 12,000, Clarence Spear 5,000, and Jasper Lamar Crab 25,000 acres. Jasper Lamar Crab. You know him? I think I would have remembered. Yeah. They're blowing these farmers out of their land and then picking it up for peanuts. You have any idea what this land would be worth with a steady water supply? About 30 million more than they paid for it. Hollis knew about this. That's why he was killed. Jasper Lamar Crab. Jasper Lamar Crab. We got it. What? We got it. What? What is it? A memorial service was held at the Marvest Inn today for Jasper Lamar Crab. He passed away two weeks ago. Where is that unusual? He passed away two weeks ago, and one week ago he bought the land. That's unusual. There's a scam going on. Um, that's when he realizes it. You know, he tells her, and that's that's when we... Then that's when he gets to the real part of the matter. All of the names that are on... Uh, that have supposedly have made this purchase have become all the owners of this new piece of land are all the residents that are living in this in this rest home. And that's at that point they go into uh, the ma- one of the main rooms, and they see all these people in there, all these elderly people yeah. that are unaware that they have have become have supposedly become owners of of a million dollar property. Right. So the one lady says, you know, uh, oh my nephew, you know, um, is a member of the club, and they they give us stuff. Well, yeah, because they're using your name. they're setting you know they're setting up a a scam here now as he's talking to these women and trying to find out more information the man who they met at the front comes in and ushers them back out into the lobby because these henchmen have shown up at the retirement home jake kind of gets into a scuffle with them right after that but then as he's coming out we see the two henchmen that are the 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 
well, we see Roman Polanski coming up again. Right. You know, the same guy who had the knife. And yeah. But right as they're walking up, Evelyn speeds around in her car, almost running oh, yeah, yeah. over. And yeah, and they jump out of the way and Jake is able to jump onto the side of the car so they can flee yeah. out of there. But I think it's Mulderville who um, pulls his gun out and shoots after them. But Yeah, that becomes a little foreshadowing. Yes. It's also a really it's a it's a really um great scene with that where she saves him, you know, from this fight. Um by, by wheeling in with the car and, you know, grabbing him. But, yeah, they, they get shot at, and um, actually one of the bullets uh, cracks the windshield. Yeah. But actually, yeah. I think it goes all the way through the windshield. You notice the crack first, and then you see that there's a hole. Yeah, and it's it might just seem, as you're watching it, that this is just a very... Um, action sort of a moment and it's a very exciting but it's something to keep in mind though because everything means something in this movie everything and yeah. so it's definitely um i would say something i would really suggest uh people just keep in their heads uh during this because it's a very um it's a very important scene to remember but i think it's the scene after that that really really explains what this movie is all about because and it explains why the movie is called chinatown uh to to begin with because they're back at evelyn's house and uh she has let all the servants have the night off for that night and so she carries out this tray with like there's a, a bottle of what looks like scotch on it and mm-hmm. um you know he's He's out outside in the back, the, the the backyard by the tide pool, and you know the table out back. And she carries this big tray out, and they, you know, she pours a drink for each of them. It's sort of like they're just having sort of a relaxed moment after just after the mayhem that just happened. But there's a yeah. really really important line in there that is. Seems very innocuous at first, but then you, you realize later on just how important it really is. Well, I'm judging only on the basis of one afternoon and an evening, but if this is how you go about your work, I'd say you'd be lucky to uh, get through a whole day. Actually, this hasn't happened to me for a long time. When was the last time? Why? It's an innocent question. In Chinatown. What were you doing there? Working for the district attorney. Doing what? As little as possible. Jake mentions Chinatown. And Evelyn asks him, what were you doing in Chinatown? Yeah. And he says... He said, working for the DA. Working for the district attorney. And then she says, doing what? And his response to that is as little as possible. And it se- he sort of says it, when he says it, he says it with a laugh. Sort of like yeah. it's, it seems very innocuous and just something that just people say, you know, people say like, yeah. you know, you know, people what, you know, oh, the, oh, and, 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 and what do you do at, at your job? And people say, 
Like, oh, I oh, I do as little as possible. It seems like one yeah. of those like very innocuous things that people say all the time. And we've already established him to be somewhat of a smartass. Yeah. So you know, he he gives those kind of answers. Like um, Ida Sessions when she calls him, asks if he's alone, and he says, "Aren't we all?" Yeah. Um, exactly. So we we've established he's that kind of a smartass. So when he says, "Yeah, as little as possible," we take it. In that, in that way. Yeah, and especially that's the tone at the time, too, is because they're back at her house, and um, it's a very calm moment. They're away Sorry. from away from the, the gunfire. They're sort of having a relaxed moment. They're having a drink, and it just seems like idle conversation at right. that point. But that line, um, and I didn't realize this the first few times that I saw this movie that the answer that he gave as little as possible basically yeah. explains the entire movie um, yeah it explains what what is happening not just what is happening but why so much um so much bad is happening and why why it seems like you know all the people in power are able to um, manipulate people, and why and right. why why the, this this supposed murder is happening? Um, right, and and you know it also it will bring us around to understand our hero's journey. Right, he in most you know, in in positive kinds of films where you have a happy ending and the hero wins out, usually it's because of some sort of character development, meaning his personality character, not the character that's written. Mm -hmm. So your hero usually goes through some sort of a change. Uh, they learn something, they grow, they, they become better. But in a film noir, and in, in this one especially, he, he actually degenerates along the way. So he, he does come to a realization, but it's not a happy ending. It's not a happy, it's not a happy realization. Um, in the end, he does learn a lesson, but he doesn't evolve, he devolves. And that's another reason why it's such a brilliant script. Um, because the way this unfolds and unravels, really, it's more like an unraveling. It's sort of woven together. Um, and then that's what happens. It's the opposite of, a, of the hero's journey. I would suggest to people, because I don't want to give away too much of, of the plot or anything, but my, yeah. my suggestion to anybody who has not seen this... Um, just remember that if you remember anything from the scenes sort of towards the middle, remember that line when he says uh -huh. as little as possible. Because uh -huh. you may find later on that he has a line that you're not really able to hear and you might be wondering what he's saying. But So just kind of keep that in mind um, because it's, it's one of those things that... that comes back around again for sure and so that night while they're while they're there it's it's right after that actually jake asks evelyn if she has any peroxide or anything like that because you know he obviously he got roughed up so his nose is started bleeding again and it's bled right. bled through the bandage it's very noticeable by that point um right she says of course so they go into her bathroom she pulls out the peroxide and she starts cleaning the the knife wound on his nostril and she's noticing just how horrible of a cut it really is 
and yeah. the whole time he's he's staring directly into her eyes but not not really staring directly into her eyes like one eye in particular it must be painful what's wrong your eye what about it Something black in the green part of your eye. Oh, that. It's, um, it's a flaw in the iris. Flaw? Yes, This a sort of birthmark. This is the disturbing part, I think. There's something very soft and intimate about that particular moment. Because yeah, it's the first right time I that. saw that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. It's like it's right after that that it it does that they kiss and it does develop into um, we don't see it on camera but it's a love scene and what we see next is afterward when they're both laying in bed. Um, so it's a very uh, it's a very soft, um, almost almost romantic type of a moment that he's gazing into her her one eye like that. Yeah, and the first time I saw it, I read it as him just kind of being smooth, like looking in her eyes and then noticing something. And, you know, you, you kind of feel like, again, like, oh, that's just chit idle chit-chat, but it turns out not to be. Um, but for the moment, you believe, okay, he's, he's going to kiss her. He's looking in her eyes. He's going to kiss her. Oh, I noticed the spot in her eye. Like, you don't really think it means anything, but it does. I think at this point, I don't want to reveal anything else to people. I think I really want anybody who hasn't seen Chinatown to to see it for themselves at this point. There there are so many delightful details to discover. And even though and, and we have actually revealed a lot already, like more than I was planning to. Yeah. But I don't think but I don't think it spoils the experience at all. Because um you know, so maybe you might keep some of these things in your mind when you're watching it, but we haven't told you really how that fits together and why and what it means in the end. And, you know, that's a that's an experience, yeah, exactly, people should have for themselves. I would really suggest watching this movie more than once because, like I said at the beginning, it's one of those movies where you notice something new each time that you watch it. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's something, some imagery in the background yeah. or something wardrobe-wise, or a line that is said. There's all, Something means something with everything. Yeah, every, every, detail. every detail was was um, was taken care of, you know, to the utmost. They, they really went to great lengths to make it as perfect as they could. And I think that that's why it's regarded as as a, a perfect film I get so many so many critics regard Chinatown as being one of the most perfectly as close to perfect I mean you can't really say perfect because that's right. sub subjective of course but um as close to perfect probably as most films can get yeah yeah, yeah very 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 exceedingly well orchestrated from every aspect um all of these people again like I said before at the top of their game and then killing it. So I guess my last question would be, what would you really suggest to the audience viewing this for the first time? What are some of the main things you really want people to notice in their, in their first viewing of Chinatown? 
um, well, you know, there's so much to see. But I think, I mean, for the most part, you want to you want to sort of soak it in. You want to kind of enjoy it. But I would just say to pay attention when people say things. Every, everything was everything was placed there for a reason. So take take that everything is weightier than it appears to be in the beginning. But for the most part, I mean, your first time viewing the film, I would say try to soak it in because it's it's a beautiful film. It's, it's brilliantly shot. It's very visually beautiful too. It's like they've really recreated 1930s Los Angeles yeah. perfectly. Wardrobe, yeah. even the cars that they're driving. Ah. Uh, the cars, oh yeah. my god, yeah. It is, yeah. A it is a visually beautiful film. Yeah, I think, and I would I would want people to mostly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's a great it, it's a great story too. It's a, yeah. it's a it's a mystery. It's it's mystery and it's murder and it's sex and it's like there's it's got all the yeah. things. It's it's got all the things that uh, all the things yeah all the things <laughs> that a, that a that a that a film noir or a neo noir is supposed to have. Well, or even an action film. You know, you have you have gunplay. You have car chases, you have, you know, again, murder, like, all of the, all of that plays in so many different kinds of films that we love. Um, yeah, it's a very enjoyable film. Chinatown was a commercial success. It was made with a budget of $6 million and made $29.2 million at the box office. It was nominated for a total of seven Academy Awards, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Director, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, Best Sound, and it won the award for Best Original Screenplay by Robert Town. I couldn't possibly go through the whole list of various awards and nominations, but I do want to mention Jack's win for Best Actor at the British Academy Film Awards, also known as the BAFTA Awards. Jack would win Best Actor at the BAFTA Awards that year for his roles in both The Last Detail and Chinatown but he wasn't present at the ceremony to accept it. He was on location in Salem, Oregon, filming 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So for Jack's acceptance speech, they made a video on the set of Cuckoo's Nest featuring the entire cast in character. It is delightful and you can find a video of this gem on YouTube. I will be posting the video on Facebook for you to see shortly after this episode is released. You're welcome. But in all seriousness, I want to thank the fabulous Melissa Torriero for joining me for this episode. Again, please visit her website at latebloomerproductions.net so you can be up to date on her upcoming projects once we are all free from COVID. And I have to shout out another podcast here on the Clovercrest Network. Now, as you may know, director Roman Polanski was married to actress Sharon Tate. 
until she was murdered by the Manson family in 1969. Next week, Ivy League Murders, hosted by Sarah Alcorn and Laura Rodriguez McDonald, will have an episode detailing the Manson murders. And just like with You Don't Know Jack, you can subscribe to Ivy League Murders wherever you get your podcasts. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and get to know all of us here in the Clovercrest universe. And make sure to drop by on social media. That's You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And listen, do you want to know when I'm reviewing your favorite of Jack's movies? I just this week posted the full episode schedule for you to check out. So for next week, let me ask you this. Do you like rock operas? Specifically, do you like The Who? Because next week, we are talking about The Who's 1975 rock opera, Tommy. That's right, Jack is in there for one scene, and he plays the doctor. And if he's in it, we talk about it. That's the rule. And as a quick side note, Yes, I am still working on getting you that review of The Bane of My Existence, a.k.a. 1971's A Safe Place. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. Jack.